0: There are many different kinds of warfare that we speak of. There's what you might call conventional warfare with guns and tanks. There is biological warfare. There is chemical warfare, nuclear warfare. There's economic warfare, psychological warfare, all different kinds of warfare. Of course, we as Christians know there is such a thing as spiritual warfare. But there's another kind of warfare, and I I suppose this could be considered a subset of spiritual warfare, but it really needs to be named on its own because it's so important. It is liturgical warfare. Worship as warfare. Some Christians think of... Worship as a retreat from the world, a kind of escape. There are what you might call liturgical pacifists. They don't see liturgy as a form of warfare. But it's very clear from Scripture, when Christians worship the way they should, worship is warfare, a different kind of warfare than these other kinds of warfare we talk about, but it is warfare. See, worship, what we're doing as we gather here today as God's people, worship is not a break in the warfare we Christians are constantly fighting against the world of flesh and the devil. No, in fact, when we gather to gather for worship, we are on the front lines in worship in a more direct way than at any other time. We charge the gates of hell. We take the battering ram of the gospel to the gates of hell. We are gathered here today that we might make an all-out assault on Satan's headquarters to set the captives free, to bring transformation and renewal, yes, in our own lives, but in the world around us as well. Liturgical warfare is the most potent form of warfare there is. All those other kinds of warfare, yes, they can, they can be very powerful, but worship has a greater potency. Liturgical warfare changes the world. Christians who are paying attention to what's happening in the world around us today... We'll often talk about the culture wars. That's another kind of warfare you hear about, cultural warfare. And there are some Christians who say, we got to jump in and fight the culture wars, and they want to fight the culture wars just the way people in the world are doing. And there are other Christians who say, no, we should ignore the culture wars, forget the culture wars, just preach the gospel. And apparently the gospel they preach has nothing to say or no bearing upon the culture wars. Both of those views are wrong. We must engage the culture wars, but we must do so in a different kind of way. Ultimately, the way we fight these battles in the culture and the world is through worship. Let me give you an example of this. Just just throw an example out here. When people talk about the culture wars, what kind of things are they talking about? Well, one thing they'll talk about uh, is the breakdown of the family. And you'll hear people talk about the low marriage rates and low birth rates today, high fatherless rates, all the children born out of wedlock, uh, abortion, high divorce rates. All of those problems taken together, the breakdown of the family, they're a key part of the culture war. And you can hear about all that, and it might be easy to think, okay, what we should do then is we need to fix the family. Fix the family, you fix the culture. The family's broken, that seems to be the problem, let's fix it. And it's true, the family is broken and it does need fixing, but the question is, how? How are you going to do that? How are you going to fix the family and fatherlessness and low birth rates and high divorce rates? It's very important for us to understand, you are not going to win the culture war by fighting the culture war. You have to go behind the culture war. You have to go to the war behind the culture war, to the spiritual war, the liturgical war. That's really where the action is. Think about it. The family can't fix itself. The family's broken. The family can't fix itself. It can't heal itself. Politicians certainly can't fix the family. What's going to fix the family? Only the grace of God can fix the family. So where is the family going to find the grace of God? Where is God's grace at work? Well, God's grace is especially found where his word is proclaimed, where the Lord's Supper is celebrated. See, the church's calling in part is to disciple the family, to transform the family, to heal the family by the grace of God, to restore the family because grace restores this fallen creation. And when the church does so, it works, it is effective. What they find, there's actually, I just saw a study that came out in the past week about this. People who attend church regularly, that is people who are in church weekly, just don't have the same issues that you find in the rest of the culture where the family's falling apart. People who worship regularly on the Lord's Day have far fewer divorces. There's far less abuse. They have more kids. They have happier and better behaved kids. They have happier and healthier marriages in general. And you could do this with virtually any area of life people who feast with the king each week, make better family members, better workers, better citizens. Take work, this is another obvious one. One of the great complaints, if you talk to any employer in our culture today, they will say the problem is workers don't want to work, workers are lazy. And so again, you ask, how can we fix that? How can we make it so people want to work hard, so they pursue competency and excellence in their work? Well, they need to be restored as workers made in God's image this is part of what it means to bear God's image we are workers because God is a worker well how are you going to restore people as workers in God's image it takes the restorative power of the gospel nothing less than that will do to inspire people to pursue excellence and competency in their work so how are people going to be restored through the gospel with a liturgy is central to that. The liturgy transforms culture because the liturgy transforms people. And the liturgy has this transformative power because God is at work in it and through it. People who hear God's word taught every week are wiser and they're better able to cope with life's challenges. People who sing psalms and pray and fellowship with God's people are going to be stronger and more virtuous. We saw this during COVID. Studies came out as uh, COVID sort of petered out. Studies came out and found that the people who did the best during the COVID crisis were the people who kept worshiping every week every other group of people out there did worse during covid but people who kept worshiping faithfully maybe with a slight interruption a very brief interruption but then jumped back into church the churches opened back up and they started worshiping again those are the people who did the best lower rates of depression lower rates of other mental illness they did the best through the crisis i could go on and on with this kind of thing but i think you get the point Now, I don't want you to misunderstand this. Do not misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that worship is a pragmatic thing that serves these pragmatic ends. I'm not saying you should go to church because then you'll have a better, more comfortable, happier life as if worship was just a means to some humanistic end. No, not at all. I'm not saying that if you're a faithful Christian, you're a faithful churchman, uh, that your life's going to be easy. In fact, most likely, your life is going to be a lot harder, to be honest, because of the hardships that come with being a faithful Christian, a faithful churchman. But even if your life is harder as a Christian, it will be better. It will be a better life, because you're going to have purpose and significance and drive and motivation you would otherwise lack. You're going to have a mission in life. You're going to have fellowship and community you would otherwise lack. See, worship, rounds our lives. It gets rounding to our lives. Worship transforms your life and worship transforms the world. The world is in the grip of idols. How are we going to break the world free from those idols? How can those powers that hold the world in its grip, how can those powers be broken? Worship is the key. Worship is the key to your life. Worship is the key to history. Worship is the way you are changed. Worship is the way the world will be changed. What I'm saying is this. Regular worship with God's people, regularly gathering to worship with God's people, unleashes the grace of God in your life and in the world with transformative power, with idol smashing power, with sin forgiving power. That's the kind of power we need. That's the kind of power we desire. The most fundamental form of warfare we can wage against the sin and evil that twist and mar and deform human life is liturgical warfare. The war behind the culture war is the liturgical war. It is this spiritual war. And scripture is chock full of examples of this, the power of liturgical warfare warfare. When God's people gather to gather to worship him, God does amazing things. When the Lord's people gather on the Lord's day for the Lord's service to hear the Lord's word proclaimed and to celebrate the Lord's table, we're transformed and the world is transformed. And this is so important for us to see because I know a lot of Christians today who feel very powerless. They look at everything going on in the world around And it is easy to feel powerless, like we have no voice with the powers that be. And you think, well, I could go vote, but will my vote matter? Will it count? I could uh, do different kinds of political activism, but will that amount to anything? And even if we got the right people elected, would that make any difference? Because we've gotten the right people elected before, we thought, and then nothing really changed. But you are not powerless. The weakest Christian who prays is stronger than the mightiest non Christian who doesn't. Because there's power to be found in prayer. We are a kingdom of priests. We are royalty. And one way we exercise our rule is through prayer. We're a kingdom of priests. We are seated with Christ Jesus at the Father's right hand in heavenly places. We are actually not powerless at all, we're actually the rulers. We're actually part of the cosmic aristocracy. We're part of the ruling class, the cosmic ruling class. Because we are God's royal priesthood. Prayer is power. Prayer is authority. It is a weapon in our liturgical arsenal, along with psalms and hymns and preaching and the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are the tools God has given to us. These tools in our toolbox This is how we change the world. This is how we build a new world by the grace of God. Worship could change the world. And that is because we are priests who worship in the heavenly sanctuary on behalf of the world. In worship, we go to war with all that is wrong with the world. We seek to set things right. Worship manifests God's kingdom and extends God's kingdom. Worship is warfare. Joshua got this. Go back to the book of Joshua. Joshua certainly knew this. Think about how the city of Jericho fell, this mighty walled city of Jericho in the land of promise. And God had said to the people, go conquer it. So how does does Joshua do it? Well, what did they do? You know the story? The priests carried the Ark of the Covenant around the city, blowing their trumpets. This was not a military battle. This was a liturgical battle, and worship made the walls fall down. There are walls in our world that seem insurmountable, idolatrous fortresses, and we think, can we take it? Is there any way we can ever conquer it? Just the way the Israelites looked at Jericho, but they conquered it, they conquered it through worship. David knew this as well. Psalm 144 opens with these words, Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my fingers for battle. So how does the Lord tra- train David's fingers for battle? We might think, oh, bow and arrow. He's going to learn how to string the bow and with his fingers release the arrow. Maybe something like that. Maybe use his fingers to pick up stones to put in his sling. And that's how God will train his fingers to fight. But what do you find in the rest of the psalm? How does God train David's fingers to fight? He says later in the psalm, he plays the ten-stringed. He says, I will sing a new song to you, O God, on a ten stringed harp. I will play to you ten strings for his ten fingers. How does God train David's fingers for battle? By training him to play God's praises, to sing God's praises. David's fingers do the fighting as he plays songs of worship to God. And of course, David knew this. This is exactly how David fought against the demonic spirit that possessed Saul in 1 Samuel 16. We read about this. When the harmful spirit was upon Saul, David would take his lyre and he played with his hand and Saul was refreshed and well. How did David fight against the demon that plagued Saul? With songs of praise. He would play hymns and psalms to God and and Saul would be exercised. Saul would be refreshed and made well. David used liturgy, the playing and singing of psalms, to heal Saul's mind and heart. If we live in a culture that seems to be racked and tortured with harmful spirits, demonic spirits, which I think we very much are. We live in a land full of souls, people who have the same kind of spiritual condition as Saul. How do we exercise the demons? How do we exercise our land? Psalms and hymns sung to God. These songs of praise will drive out the demons. If you look at Psalm 149, you find the same reality. The first half of the psalm is all about singing and playing instruments to the Lord. The second half is all about God bringing judgment on the nations. Through those praises, through those praises, God casts down those who oppose his truth. Samuel understood this in the book of Samuel. Samuel led the people to victory over the Philistines in 1 Samuel 7 in the battle of Ebenezer. How did he do so? Not by gathering a larger army, but by offering sacrifices and prayers to the Lord. And through these sacrifices, through these praises, through these prayers, the Lord granted to Samuel the victory. The Bible is full of examples of this, examples of liturgical warfare. I'm just kind of giving you the highlight reel, picking out a few examples, but this is not anything like an exhaustive list. This happens again and again and again. What you see, the basic principle is this. Israel wins battles through faithful worship. And Israel's enemies defeat her when she falls into idolatry. In other words, worship holds the key. Liturgy is the key to history. God's people advance, going forth, conquering and to conquer when they are faithful in worship. And God's people are defeated and pushed back and overcome when they're unfaithful in worship. One of the best and most extensive examples we have of this in Scripture is in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, the story of King Jehoshaphat. King Jehoshaphat knew liturgical warfare was the most potent form of warfare. And this is a truly great story. It demonstrates so many of these truths so clearly. Jehoshaphat was king of Judah. For most of his 25-year reign, he was a good and God-fearing king. He was the son of Asa who had been a godly king. Jehoshaphat's name means Yahweh judges. And this is a story of God bringing judgment, judging in favor of his people and judging, judging against those who have opposed them. Early in Jehoshaphat's reign, he sent teachers of the law all throughout Judah and God blessed him. And the people, because of this, as God's word, was proclaimed far and wide in the land of Judah. He did have a brief fall, a brief lapse, when he aligned himself with the wicked king Ahab in the north, in Israel. But he repented of that, and he was restored to the Lord. He returned to the Lord in repentance, and God blessed him because of it. But in 2 Chronicles 20, Jehoshaphat finds himself in a desperate situation. After a prolonged period of peace, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and some Syrians have mounted a massive offensive against Jerusalem. They are engaging in this massive assault on Jerusalem, the capital city, the city where Jehoshaphat reigns. And Jehoshaphat was afraid, according to verse 3, and it was right to be afraid. He had every reason to be afraid. He knew there was no political or military solution to the problem he faced. Even if he got every soldier he could, every weapon he could, he would still be overmatched. He could not defeat these enemies on his own. He was outnumbered and he was surrounded. It looked like the enemy had him dead to rights. No doubt he was tempted to seek out some kind of alliance with a wicked king like he had done with Ahab before. Some way of strengthening his position, but at what cost? At the cost of compromising himself spiritually. That's what he had done with Ahab earlier. But he learned his lesson Not this time, he doesn't do that. So what does he do? Well, he responds the only way he can He responds liturgically. He seeks the Lord. He proclaims a fast in verse 3. He gathers the people for prayer, and they come from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. Verse 4, the nation is humble before the Lord in worship. The nation sees their utter dependence upon the grace and the mercy and the covenant faithfulness of the Lord if they are to survive this attack. Jehoshaphat leads the people in prayer, praising God for who he is. He rehearses God's great acts on their behalf in the past. He praises God for what he's done and what he can do. You see that in verses 5 through 9. And then in verses 10 through 12, he makes his request very specific. He says, "Oh God, may you execute judgment on them, for we are powerless against this great horde coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Their eyes are fixed on the Lord. They are trusting the Lord as they cry out to him. Jehoshaphat recounts God's great deeds in the past, and then he asks God to do another great deed in the present. He essentially says, Lord, we are trusting in you. We are counting on you to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. The enemy is too big. The enemy's forces are too strong. You alone must rescue us. You alone can give us this victory. What happens next? Verse 13, the people of Judah stood before the Lord, the whole nation says the men with their wives and their children and even their little ones. Remember, we talked about this last week, how even the little ones are gathered for worship when God's people gather. And the Spirit then comes upon a man named Jehaziel. He's a Levite and a prophet, and he prophesies, he speaks God's word to them in the midst of the assembly. He says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of this great for the battle is not yours but God's you will not need to fight this battle stand firm hold your position and tomorrow you will see the salvation of the Lord oh what great words these words are here the prophet says God's going to take care of it God's got your back God's got you covered God's going to fight for you God can take care of you God can give you the victory. In verse 18, Jehoshaphat bows before the Lord and the people follow his lead. They all worship the Lord together. And then the Levites, the Kohathites, and the Korathites lead the people in loud songs of praise before the Lord. And the next day, Jehoshaphat stands before Judah, all the people of the land, and he says, Hear me, believe in the Lord your God and in his prophets, and you will stand victorious. You will prosper, you will have success. And what happens next? This is the day of the battle. This is the the great climactic day. Everybody's been looking towards what happens. Well, What happens is not so much a military exercise, but a continuation of the previous day's worship service. It is a liturgy. Jehoshaphat forms a choir out of those who are most skilled in singing the Lord's praises, and he puts them in worship attire, in holy garments, in priestly vestments. And they went before the army of Judah singing a psalm. What did they sing? Tells us, give thanks to the Lord for his covenant love endures forever. That is the refrain of Psalm 136. If you've been at TPC for a while, you've sung that psalm dozens of times. You have sung those very words time and time again. Psalm 136. They're singing before the Lord, giving thanks before he's even given them the victory. Note this. This is so important to see. Those leading the way were not the best soldiers, but the best singers. Or maybe we should say the best singers were the best soldiers. Those who knew the Psalms, those who could sing the Psalms, those were the ones who made the best soldiers. Those singing the Lord's praises are the tip of the spear here. They will lead the way into battle. Worship is their only weapon. Soldiers in the Lord's army fight through prayers and through songs. Jehoshaphat knew that and that's why he took this course of action. So verse 22 tells us, as they began to sing, the Lord ambushed their enemies and they were routed. And when the men of Judah looked around, all they could see were the dead bodies of their enemies scattered across the battlefield. There was so much plunder for them. It took three days to gather it all up. Jehoshaphat and his people had gained a great, great victory. And they had gained great spoil through this great victory. And then they rejoiced in what the Lord had done for them. They were giving thanks even before the battle began. Of course, they continue giving thanks after they've been given the victory. And so it says they broke out the the harps and the lyres and the trumpets on their march back to Jerusalem, on their march back to the house of God, and they celebrated they had worshipped their way to victory. That's what you see with Judah here. They worshipped their way to victory. And as news of their victory spread, what happened Fear came upon all the other nations around, the kingdoms all around. And so the Lord gave them rest. What happened through the liturgy, through the faithful worship of God's people? Liturgy transformed the culture and the world. A sweeping victory was won when they waged liturgical warfare. They had prayed that God would judge his enemies, and he did. And again, what were their weapons in this triumph? Scripture, prayer, and song were the key weapons in their arsenal. Jehoshaphat and all the people together had cried out to the Lord, and the Lord had come riding forth to crush those who opposed His truth and who opposed His people. And this is how God calls us to fight our battles as well. These are the key weapons the church needs to use in our day. Worship shapes the world. Look, we are at war. We are at war every bit as much as Jehoshaphat was at war. Whether you like it or not, whether you would call for war yourself or not, war is upon you. We are all at war. And ultimately, this war is not merely against flesh and blood. It is against principalities and powers, spiritual forces of darkness in high places. Don't settle for fighting the culture war using the culture's weapons. Fight the war behind the culture war, the spiritual war. That's how you win. God started this war, and God intends to finish it. God started this war, and God intends to win it. God declared war in Genesis 3.15 when he promised to put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Remember, the serpent had snuck into the garden and misled the woman, the bride. And of course, the man had followed her into sin. Well, in the midst of those curses, God hands out because of their sin afterwards. He also makes a promise of redemption, putting enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And the way the seed of the woman will win is fundamentally through faithful worship and the obedience that goes with it. The church is an army. You are the church. That means you are God's army. You are soldiers in God's army. And God calls you to fight using these weapons. The church is an army. In Song of Solomon, the lover describes his beloved, the bride, in chapter 6 quote, as beautiful as Tirzah and Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Tirzah was an ancient military fortress. He's saying the bride, we could say the church by extension, he's saying the bride, the church, is like a fortified city, like a military base, awesome as an army with banners. The church is called to war, and these are her weapons. These are the weapons of her warfare. And these weapons work. And this is not just an Old Testament thing. This is a New Testament thing as well. You've got lots of New Testament examples of this. When Jesus left the upper room and went out into the night to face those who would betray and arrest and crucify him, how did he steel himself for battle with that darkness how did he steal himself for battle with that kind of evil well mark in his account tells us after the passover meal after the last supper jesus and the disciples sang a psalm almost certainly they sang psalm 118 because that was the customary psalm to sing at the end of the passover meal so they sang a psalm and then he went to the garden of gethsemane to pray Jesus equipped himself for the, greatest of, for the greatest of all battles. The battle to end all battles, the ultimate battle, Jesus equipped himself for that battle with a psalm and with prayer. These are the weapons of light that slay the darkness. The biggest book in the Bible is a songbook for a reason. Each psalm is a weapon, each psalm is a piece of ammunition, Suited for the battlefields of life and culture. And one reason the church doesn't fight very effectively today is because we do not know how to wield these weapons very skillfully. We're like a police officer or soldier who doesn't really know how to use his gun very well, doesn't know how to use his rifle very well. He's not very skilled with it. That's not the kind of soldier who's going to succeed on the battlefield. Well, a church that's not skilled in seeing God's praises, in using the Psalter, in using God's hymn book, is not going to be very effective in the battle. We need weapons training. We need basic training in these things so we can use the Psalms of prayer and Scripture effectively. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 says, The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, But mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and anything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. So we can bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. What is Paul saying? He's saying every thought, every idea, every imagination, every belief, every conviction is to be made obedient to Christ. In a war, it always makes sense to start with the closest target. So I would say as you fight this battle to take every thought captive, start with yourself. Make your own thoughts and ideas and imaginations and convictions captive to Christ first. Deal with sin in your own heart first, but then move out from there. And see, Paul's really telling us what the preaching of the word, the proclamation of the word, should do. The preaching of the word should give us a blueprint for faithfulness in all of life and culture. Preaching is one of the chief ways strongholds of idolatry and unbelief in the world are torn down. We want everyone's thoughts in all of Birmingham to be brought into captivity and to be made obedient to Christ. We want the thoughts of all Americans to be made obedient to Christ. We want the thinking of the whole world, of all people everywhere, from presidents down to peasants, to be made obedient to Christ that's what Paul is saying. And we want people's thoughts about everything to be made obedient to Christ. Certainly we want their thoughts about salvation to be obedient to Christ, their thoughts about God and man and sin and heaven and hell and righteousness. We want their thoughts about those things to be made obedient to Christ. But we want every thought about everything to be made obedient to Christ. That's what Paul is saying. That means Their thoughts about sex and gender, about economics and education, about beauty and about storytelling and art and music and architecture and business and civil government. Every thought about everything is to be made captive to Christ. And the way we do this is through these liturgical weapons God has given to us. The word, prayer, psalms, Hymns, the sacraments. This is the promise here. The church will pray and praise and preach her way to victory. There is no other way to victory for the church. The church will pray and praise and preach her way to victory. The battle is the Lord's, and we must use the Lord's weapons. This is what Paul and Silas did in Acts chapter 16. Again, we read this story this morning, Acts chapter 16. And this is another illustration of how the Psalms and prayer are potent, world-changing forces. What's happening here? Paul and Silas have been on a missionary journey. They got arrested and thrown in prison. Why? Because they drove out an evil spirit. They drove an evil spirit out of a girl who was using that evil spirit to be a fortune teller. And once they exercised her of this evil spirit, the masters of this girl lost money. And so they accused Paul and Silas of disturbing the peace. And they had disturbed the local economy for sure. And so they're thrown into prison. Well, what did they do in prison? How did they fight back? Well, it tells us at midnight, they were singing hymns and Praying to God, it's interesting, many deliverances in Scripture happen at midnight in the deepest depths of darkness, in the darkest part of the night, God shines His light, and that's what happens here. And, and note two, many of the psalms call on God to deliver the righteous when they have been falsely accused, when they have been wronged in some way, even imprisoned wrong. My guess is they were singing Psalm 18 because it fits the occasion so well. In Psalm 18, it talks about God breaking cords. It talks about God sending an earthquake. It talks about God bringing the nations into his kingdom. All things that happen in this chapter. They're singing Psalm 18 is my guess. What happens in the story? God sends a great earthquake. Their jail cell is open. Their bonds fell off. They're free. And the jailer's about to kill himself because if your prisoners go free and you're a Roman jailer, your prisoners escape. That's on you. Your life is forfeit. But Paul and Silas tell the jailer to stop. And of course, you know how the rest of the story goes. They end up preaching the gospel to him, they tell him to believe on the gospel and be baptized, him and his household. And so the jailer and his whole household end up converted and getting baptized by the end of the story. What's this story about? Paul and Silas singing and praying their way to freedom and evangelistic success. They have success in their mission because they have prayed and sung. Liturgy is the driving force. Liturgy unleashes divine power. Here's another example. Paul charging Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 to fight the good fight or to war the good warfare. What does that mean? Timothy was a pastor He was the pastor of the church in Ephesus. He's not a military commander. He's a pastor. And Paul's telling him to fight the good fight, to war the good warfare. What's going on here? Well, Paul's telling Timothy he does have a battle to fight. And it's not just a personal battle in his own life. This is not just a personal charge. It's a pastoral charge. It means that Timothy is to lead the whole church in fighting the good fight. He's to lead the church into war. Which means the church gathers for warfare when she gathers for worship. Liturgy is war. Ministry is war. Fight the good fight in these ways. That's what Paul is saying. You see this in Revelation chapter 8. We read this one too this morning. The prayers of the saints go up and fire falls down from heaven. The prayers ascend to heaven and fire falls from heaven. And whether that's the fire of the Holy Spirit of Pentecost to bring blessing and salvation, or the fire of God's wrath and judgment against their enemies, it doesn't really matter. It's it's the same either way. Through the prayers of God's people, history is being shaped. Let me wrap this up with a final thought. There are a lot of reasons why the church's worship today is impotent compared to other times in Scripture and in church history. As I said already, the church today is not very skilled in using the tools God has put in our toolbox. We're not very skilled in using the weapons God has put in our arsenal. Our psalm singing is rusty at best. We have lost the soundtrack that supports our warfare. The sword of preaching, the sword of the word, has been dull. So much preaching in, in, in the church today, frankly, is about making people feel good And about giving people little how-to steps, how to do this or how to do that better, rather than making them faithful and mature disciples of Jesus. So much of the church today seems more concerned with entertaining people rather than worshiping the Lord in reverence and fear and in the beauty of His holiness. We have lost the fear of God in worship. We don't reverence God. Our prayers are often drivel compared to the prayers we find in Scripture and prayers offered by the great saints over the last 2,000 years. It seems to me so much of the church today is really just playing church. We're just playing church. A lot of times we're just playing church instead of really doing what God wants us to do. Too often when a serpent sneaks into the church's garden in the form of, say, false teaching or some kind of false practice. So often when a serpent sneaks into the church's garden, what do we do? All too often, pastors and church members alike stand around and watch as the snake lies to lead the bride astray the way Adam just stood there and watched in Genesis chapter 3. And so the church gets misled. The church gets led into error. Or maybe a serpent sneaks into the church's garden and what do we do? We form a committee to study snakes for the next three years. That's what Presbyterians would typically do. Oh, there's a snake in the garden. Let's form a committee to, to study snakes. No, what we ought to do is crush the serpent's head and stomp it into the ground. And we do that through these means. I remember one time years ago, Don Steele's not here today. He's our, 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 our regular trumpet player. Uh, but I remember one time years ago, Uh, I was talking to Don after worship, and Don said, you know, when I sing God's praises, I feel like I am poking Satan in the eye. When we sing together, I feel like I'm poking the enemy in the eye. And I said, yes, that's right, you are. In fact, it's not just that. You're not just poking uh, Satan in the eye. You're actually crushing his skull under your feet. And in fact, Don's got a serpent rug back there in his corner as a constant reminder of that. What are we doing when the church gathers? We are trampling Satan's skull under our feet. I would love for TPC to be a church that helps lead the way in sparking liturgical reformation in the church. We do a lot of really good things. We're not quite there yet. But I would love to see us lead the way in recovering these weapons, this arsenal God has given to us. Nothing is needed more in this moment. The church today is soft because her worship is soft, her songs are soft, her preaching is soft. Everything about the church today is soft. We need to understand and recognize and recover public worship is public combat, it is warfare. Liturgy is the heart of spiritual warfare. Right here in this gathering, we are wrestling with principalities and powers right now. Worship is not just training for the battlefield. Worship is the battlefield. This is where we fight preeminently. You are all spiritual soldiers in God's army. You are an awesome army with banners unfurled. And there is glory to be had on this field of battle if we will trust the Lord and do what he says and fight faithfully with these weapons. That's the charge to the church, to fight joyfully and faithfully with these weapons. And to do that to the day you die, and then you continue to do it with the saints in heaven, with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. C.T. Studd, the, the missionary to China uh, from about 100 years ago, said, I pray that when I die, hell will rejoice that I am out of the fight." I think that's a good good thought, that's a a glorious thought. I'm going to live in such a way that when I die, hell will, will rejoice that I'm out of the fight. The only thing I would say is, why do you think you're going to be out of the fight when you die? You're going to go to be with the Lord in heaven, and there you will continue to fight. The warfare does not end in death. You keep on fighting. The souls in heaven, arrayed around God's throne, are praying for God's justice to prevail, for God's kingdom to come worship in such a way that hell knows you're in the fight and then not even when you die will the battle be over for you you will get to keep on fighting with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven we have weapons of which the world knows nothing and that means the world can do nothing to stop the use of these weapons There are no countermeasures for these weapons. Nothing the world can do to stop these weapons if only the church would wield them. The battle is not yours. The battle is the Lord's. He started it. He's going to finish it. He's going to win it. And so you can fight in the meantime with confidence and with joy. Do not be afraid. This is hard. It is hard to worship God this way, no doubt. But there's a tremendous payoff in doing so when it's all been said and done, when the final history of the church is written, what story will it tell? It will tell the story of how the whole world was conquered, not by a sword of iron, but by the sword of the Spirit. It's going to tell the story of how the whole world was conquered by the church in the name of Jesus through faithful worship. That's the story of history. That's the story of the world. That's the story of the church. That's the story we're all a part of. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.